0: Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of socialist appeal. For this week's episode, we've got another talk from last year's Revolution Festival, this time round on the topic of the materialism of the Enlightenment with Ben Kerry, who is a writer for Marxist.com, the website of the international Marxist tendency. Engels once described the period of the ascent of the modern bourgeoisie as a time that called for giants and produced giants. In the course of several centuries, an uninterrupted struggle took place, a struggle fought by means of not just the sword, but also the pen. This period produced many brilliant and profound thinkers who prepared the minds of the masses for the great revolutionary struggles that would finally bury the old system of feudalism. In place of blind faith, superstition, and the dogma of the church, these thinkers regarded human reason and the investigation of nature as the road to genuine knowledge. In doing so, they laid the basis for modern materialism and the scientific method which in turn laid the basis for the development of Marxism. In this talk, Ben will explore the road to genuine knowledge that was paved by these giants, drawing out the lessons that we must apply to the movement today. So without further ado, let's get started with this week's episode of Marxist Voice, the podcast of socialist appeal.
1: So I'm gonna be talking about uh, roughly a period of 250 years uh, so we'll try to fit that into 45 minutes or so Um, encompassing you know from the from the middle of the 15th century really to the end of the 18th century Uh, a period which encompasses uh, the uh, you know what is often called the renaissance the the reformation and towards the end of the period what we call the enlightenment Um, a period of the great bourgeois revolutions uh, essentially Um, which represents two and a half centuries of basically the most immense uh, class battles, uh, a struggle of living forces that went on for two and a half centuries. Uh, Battles that weren't just fought out on the battlefields and on the barricades, although there were plenty of those in in this period, um, but which was also fought out on the plane of religion, on the plane of philosophy, and on the plane of science, uh, as well as art and every other um, sphere of human culture. And it was a period which uh, in many respects is, uh, was much like our own is, <laughs> that is to say it was a period in which an old social system was, uh, was, was dying on its feet uh, but was refusing to leave the stage of history and in which a new social system was basically struggling to be born. Um, <clears throat> and in the course of these struggles, uh, you had thrown up uh, throughout this period a galaxy of some of the most brilliant thinkers, some of the, some of the boldest thinkers who defied persecution by the, uh, the religious establishment and the church, and who sought to carry out <clears throat> a wholesale revolution, really, in human thinking, to liberate human thought from mysticism, from the from the fog of, uh, of superstition. Uh, and they fought for Rationalism. They fought for science. They fought for human reason. And they fought, the, the, the boldest of those thinkers amongst them, fought for a militant form of materialism. Now, Engels described it as a time which called for giants and produced giants. Um, and I think that's very, much, uh, that's very much the case. Now, the, the roots of this crisis uh, in this period that we're talking about obviously have uh, their origins in uh, the dying feudal order, which had dominated Europe basically for centuries in fact, Europe had been through a period of basically a millennium of darkness, effectively, uh, since the collapse of the Roman Empire. Populations had collapsed, centres of culture had declined. Um, it was almost literally a period of darkness insofar as not just were the ancient Greek texts of, of science and philosophy lost, but the ancient Greek language was completely lost, basically, for, much of, for, for the majority of Europe in this period. Um, and it was a, uh, a, in proportion... As the uh, the centres of culture declined and, and Europe entered an epoch of, of backwardness, the strength of the Catholic Church increased its grip, basic, basically, a vice-like grip over the minds of men and women throughout this period. And... Um, the, uh, the, the, they, the, the Church, of course, provided the ideological, uh, was an ideological bulwark, and really a part fused in with the uh, the new feudal ruling class, basically, the, the, the Church was part of that. And um, this was reflected in the, uh, in the role that uh, philosophy, basically, played throughout this period. The only purpose that philosophy and natural philosophy and science formed part of philosophy, actually, until the scientific revolution, uh, starting in the 15th century, the only purpose that it played, basically, was to, to glorify... Um, God's cre- God's creation and our natural place effectively within it and that was also reflected in the elements of uh, ancient Greek thought that were preserved throughout this period which were uh, limited to uh, uh, limited amounts of Plato's ideas and a homeopathic dose of uh, Aristotle's thinking and Plato in particular his <clears throat> His views formed the philosophical basis of the, of the thought which was predominant in the, in, in the period of the Middle Ages, You know, in the monasteries amongst the monks and the, all the different schools of philosophy. And his fundamentally, his world outlook was an idealist outlook. That is to say, he inverted the relationship. It, for, for Plato, the relationship between mind and matter was inverted. It is mind which is primary and matter which was secondary, basically. I mean, basically, Plato divided the world effectively in two. We have this world around us, which is which is mortal, which is imperfect, um, and which is in a constant process of change. And then we have a second world, which is the world of our conceptions, which which are perfect, which are immortal and which for Plato have an objective existence independent of this material world. And in fact, this material world is merely an imperfect reflection of this world of ideal forms. This was the essence of Plato's idealism, basically. And the Christian church took this on board and gave it its own spin, of course, that they rejected, they, they encouraged people to reject this sinful mortal realm. And if, they want, if you wanted to seek real knowledge, it had to be knowledge of that uh, spiritual ideal realm, effectively. And that knowledge was to be grasped of course, by the means of divine revelation through faith. It was through faith that you were going to gain knowledge and insight into that other, that other realm, basically. And uh, the, the, the mode of thinking which dominated throughout the medieval period was known as uh, scholasticism, basically. It took these you know, texts which were based upon faith you know, and, and, and dogma and the fact that the church had sanctified them. Um, a small uh, infusion of philosophy and, of course, the Bible and other religious texts and the commentaries upon those texts. And uh, knowledge was sought by basically uh, applying syllogistic logic, formal logic to these texts to draw out further truths. So you have commentaries upon these you know, given texts and then commentaries upon commentaries. Um, and it, it, a huge amount of intellectual energy was basically exhausted, um, uh, commenting upon and, uh, and debating uh, utterly uh, nonsensical ideas. I mean, the, 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 you know, the the idea of scholastic, scholastic philosophers debating the, uh, the how many angels can dance on the head of a pin is basically, you know, the kind of uh, a caricature, but it wasn't far from that, basically. Francis Bacon, who we'll meet later on, a 16th century English materialist, described the endeavors of the medieval schoolmen <clears throat> as like the spider who worketh his web and brings forth indeed cobwebs of learning, admirable for the fineness of thread and work, but of no substance or profit. Um, in other words, you know, they were very intelligent people, but they were just working, they weren't looking out into the external world to, for, to, to seek knowledge, basically. They were working it up from within themselves, effectively, producing these cobwebs of knowledge. And what I think is interesting listening to Bacon Uh, words is how applicable they are to modern academia basically you know this idea of you know cobwebs of knowledge produced from within themselves you know the commentaries upon commentaries of the the medieval scholastic philosophers just like the textual analysis the discourse you know uh, uh, it's it's all based upon basically the same fundamental idealist uh, notions and methods basically of the the medieval schoolmen they are modern academia really are the uh, the the inheritors of the scholastic tradition not the Enlightenment tradition in some respects and um, to the extent that that means anything and um I think it's no coincidence, basically, that for for the uh, many schools of academics, such as like the Frankfurt School and the postmodernists, independently have come to the conclusion that they reject the Enlightenment. And what they basically mean by the rejection of the Enlightenment is is the rejection of uh, of rationality, of reason, of the possibility of of gaining a rational insight into the material world through scientific empirical investigation, and the rejection of materialism. And I think this, this, this rejection of the Enlightenment, of the postmodernists and these others, is really a, a sign of how far the bourgeois have declined, you know, of, of how how uh, how spiritually pauperized they have basically become. Um, because in their revolutionary youth um, they, they represented uh, the progress of human civilization the capitalist class they stood or, or their best representative should I say they stood for reason, rationality, the scientific method um, and they produced these brilliant thinkers because at that time they did represent progress um, because unlike the feudal lords whose wealth was based fundamentally upon land this nascent bourgeois class of course their industry was their wealth was based upon industry Sorry, and therefore their wealth in increased at that time in tandem with every advance in science and production and technology which created the basis for new productive techniques, for new methods of navigation and the expansion of trade routes. And their intellectual needs of this nascent class were fundamentally and utterly incompatible, basically, with the stifling atmosphere of the the domination, this dictatorship of the Catholic Church over the minds of of, of men and women throughout Europe. And you begin to see the first elements of of an intellectual ferment preparing the way for a revolution, basically, um, in, in the material world and also a revolution in in culture, Um, you begin to see that as early as the 12th and 13th century in the form of a crisis of scholasticism. And this crisis was actually provoked by the rediscovery, either translated from the Arabic or the rediscovery of the ancient Greeks. Uh, of the ancient Greek originals of uh, the writings of Aristotle. He was, a, he was a disciple of Plato, but unlike Plato, he was fundamentally a materialist, basically. He, he emphasized investigation of nature, of experiment and so forth. And his, his students even had a phrase, you know, there is nothing in the mind which was not first in the senses. That is the starting point of a materialist outlook, and it created a crisis. But it was in many ways really only the uh, the, the, the harbinger of a, of, a, of a greater revolution in philosophy and science to come. which really begins in the mid-15th century, and its centre is in northern Italy. And it was kicked off, of course, um, by a, a, a man known as Nicholas Copernicus, who, who wrote a book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres uh, from his deathbed, I think in 1543. Actually, uh, from his deathbed for, for, for a reason. He had a certain trepidation uh, of what the consequences for himself might be, because he understood uh, rightly that this was uh, laying down the gauntlet to the uh, to the Church. Basically, this was a revolutionary challenge to the old outlook of the heliocent Sorry, the, the geocentric, Earth-centered universe was basically part. Of the, the cosmology of the church, which justified it, was part of the justification of our place within God's creation, uh, which we must accept with resignation, um, and therefore to place the, the sun at the center of the universe was a serious challenge. Um, at that time. And um, th- this was a, a, you know, the scientific revolution was not limited to Copernicus's discoveries. You also had discoveries in this period on magnetism, the circulation of the blood uh, in engineering. And, and actually, industry and technology played a massive advance in spurring all of these uh, these discoveries and, and advances in science. And in the early 1600s, it was a discovery from industry, in particular, the Dutch invented telescope. Uh, Which which played a revolutionary role in the hands of one of the great revolutionaries of this period, and in my opinion, the true father of the Enlightenment, along with uh, figures like Francis uh, Bacon and and, and, um, Descartes. And that is uh, Galileo, who who took the telescope and he he directed it up towards the heavens, uh, and he made observations that he, he didn't just limit himself to these observations, uh, he also studied terrestrial mechanics, he studied the whole of existing physics as it had been sort of inherited by him, and he carried out, uh, uh, basically pushed forward a revolution in the whole of the existing understanding of the natural universe, not just in astronomy, in terrestrial mechanics, in, in a whole series of, 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 of areas affecting physics, basically. Um, and uh, now the full weight of the Inquisition was brought down upon on Galileo. He was uh, silenced by the church, even before before Galileo had published his uh, his landmark uh, writings, um, uh, Giordano Bruno was uh, was burnt at the stake uh, for advocating the most modern of ideas. To be honest, uh, Bruno was uh, an incredible thinker, uh, and and uh, basically the, the the intellectual life of Northern Italy was to a large degree snuffed out by the Church. In proportion as this challenge came up from below and their grip was being loosened upon the minds of men and women, they resorted to terroristic methods of the Inquisition to crush uh, the the, the intellectual life of this, uh, that, that was bubbling away, basically. But it was too late. Uh, Galileo's uh, uh, revolution had uh, left its mark on the whole of the subsequent century, really, the whole subsequent 17th and 18th century, and on philosophy in particular. And um, in, in, his, his revolution uh, began flowing into the stream of another revolution that was happening simultaneously um, and parallel, and that was in philosophy, and its um, centre really was in England, uh, where you had the restatement and the systematic uh, development of materialist philosophy for the first time in the modern period. And its originator was Francis Bacon, who I, who I previously mentioned, three years Galileo's senior. He was, uh, um, he was a man quite unlike um, Galileo, in a sense. He was not a revolutionary. Uh, in fact, he, uh, I think he was Lord Chancellor under James I. And uh, he didn't even intend to carry out. I mean, we think of materialism quite rightly as in antagonism to religion and mysticism. He was not a religious uh, reformer or a revolutionary in religion, basically. Like a lot of the materialists in England, actually, you'll see that they didn't really want to challenge the established order or even the church. And uh, in fact, he dodged a conflict with the church by basically saying, well, God is unknowable to either uh, our sense perception or to human reason. You can only know God through faith. So let's leave God to one side (laughs) and let's look at the material world and the world we're familiar with. It was a bit of a backhanded compliment to God that just battered him away, basically. Um, But nonetheless, you know, on on the primary questions that that concerned him, uh, Bacon was a a materialist. Um, You know, he regarded uh, matter as being primary. And uh, the, the ideas in our mind are a reflection of the material world around us. And knowledge, he explains, could only be had, could only be accessed through empirical investigation of nature, through our senses. Our senses form a window onto the external world. This is the basis of, uh, of empiricism. But it's also the, the starting point of materialism. And it's the starting point of the scientific method, actually. It is a correct observation to say that is the starting point of our knowledge. Science begins um, by making Observations and collecting facts about the outside world. Um, but how does that scientific method progress, according to, to, to Bacon, who is rightly regarded as the systematizer of the scientific method in the 17th century, contemporary with these great advances in science? Well, um... Of course, we take particular facts and particular observations, uh, and then, of course, what we do is we discard what is non-essential about those things, what they, what, uh, and we, we seek what they have in common, basically, and then we draw out universal conclusions. So, in other words, through the method of what we, know, we call today induction, uh, we go from the particular to the universal. That's how uh, science takes place. You know, you have particular data points on a piece of graph paper, and after you've got enough data points, you can draw a, univ- a, 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 a trend, basically. Um, That is how, uh, of course, uh, science uh, um, develops according to Bacon. and indeed, yes, it is, the start, it is the correct starting point of a materialist outlook. But the question is, is it only by our sense perception alone that we come to knowledge? Is it only by sensing the world that we know the world? Now, of course, the answer is no. It's not, of course, simply by sensing things that we, we know the world. As soon as we begin to sense the world, of course, we begin to process the, 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 you know, the world in our brain. We begin to seek some rational insights, some make generalizations, basically. Um, and then uh having made those generalizations having uh, gained some insight basically our reason in turn affects what we then further observe right <laughs> sorry uh we um obviously uh what we decide to go out and observe, the significance we place upon observations is informed by our reason itself. You know, if I've lost my phone, I'm not going to look everywhere in this building for my phone. I'm going to retrace my steps. I'm going to bring reason into the equation. You know, if I'm a a biologist and I'm carrying out, you know, a comparative anatomy of, say, zebras and horses, and I decide to dissect them and look at their tissues and, uh, uh, and, and organs, you know, I come with a certain amount of knowledge to those investigations, right? The idea of species, the idea of tissues, the idea of organs. uh, It determines what I look for. The The scientist comes with a hypothesis. So there is a dialectical interaction between reason and observation. The two are two parts of the same process. Which furthermore is not also, you know, the, the, dis- the gaining of knowledge is also not an individual, uh, you know, process. It is a social process actually. Most of what the science that you know isn't because you individually have done those experiments. Uh, you may have done some of them, but um, uh, you know, I've never proved that the atom exists. but I know that someone has done it, and I've read that the, I've read those experiments and the results of those experiments. It is a social process actually, and knowledge is a social phenomenon. It is not an individual phenomenon. Um, so there are many different sides to knowledge but of course this uh, and and the sense impressions are only one of those basically Um, the question is the the, the, the issue was with English uh, materialism um, this this new materialist uh, school that was developing it, it had the potential for a many-sided development, but in the hands of the, the, the successors to Bacon, it was really developed in a very one-sided way. This question of sense impressions was developed and, and empirical investigation, empiricism, this school became known as, uh, became um, really a very one-sided emphasis upon this side of knowledge, um, to the exclusion of reason, basically, in human activity. And the reaction to that was actually the development of a parallel school uh, of, of, of thinking uh, with its... Uh, Uh, which was based primarily in France, uh, which was centred in France, uh, which emphasised the other side of human knowledge, of reason. And these were the rationalists, the great rationalist philosophers. and of course, as, as, as you might expect, the rationalists starting with Descartes, they, they placed a great deal of emphasis on reason rather than empirical observation. And this, this, this tendency did have a strong uh, leaning in the direction therefore of idealism, the idea that we can simply deduce things from mind, from, from f- simple facts that are uh, obvious to our innate human reason, we can deduce certain things in the manner of logical or mathematical proofs about the world. Um, of course, that is, a, that is a legitimate method, but emphasizing that of course, to the exclusion of empirical um, uh, observation can lead in the direction of of idealism, obviously. But precisely because of the one-sided character of materialism, as I'll go on to, it was actually, uh, there was great contributions uh, were developed by the idealist philosophers. And in particular, of course, it was through idealism that we came to the rediscovery of dialectics in the modern period. Although, as I'll come on to, not all of the rationalist philosophers were by any means clear-cut idealists. but back to, um, back to the English materialists, for now, um, who were basically who came after Bacon. They very much developed materialism in this one-sided way. They very much developed it in a, a purely mechanical sense, and they regarded matter effectively As 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 all of matter is describable in terms of mechanical motion. Now, what do I mean by mechanical motion? I mean uh, bulk motion, as as it's described by the laws of physics. Newton, of course, was the one to definitively describe the mathematical laws of uh, of, of physics later on. Um, But basically, this this motion takes place through, uh, uh, um, you know, like like Newton's law. You know, things basically uh, continue moving in a straight line, undeflected, basically, unless there is some sort of uh, impulse from the outside. Matter itself is fundamentally inert for the mechanical materialist. It's not self-moving, basically. Um, and it is only through physical impact, through collision, that motion is produced. Uh, and therefore, I mean, Locke himself says it, we observe matter only to transfer but not to produce any motion. It's a very inert sort of uh, character of, uh, of, of, or notion of motion. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do that intentionally. Um, thank you. And so, um, yeah, we have this, this impression of the world basically as lots of interlocking parts that are bumping into each other and causing a cascade of, causing a cascade of, uh, of, of simple causes and effects which can be easily delineated from each other, much like a piece of mechanics. And that was how the world was seen, as, as like a piece of clockwork, basically. Um, and uh, precisely because everything could be described as m- in terms of mechanical motion, therefore all of the qualities of nature which we see around us were fundamentally reducible to the properties of mechanical motion. Uh, all of the qualities of nature could be described in terms of trajectory, speed, shape, you know, different geometrical qualities, uh, hardness and penetrability, these sort of things were the fundamentally everything could be reduced to this. It was a very reductionist, outlook effectively. And, um, you know, ironically, it was, it was a distortion that was caused by the rapid advance of astronomy and, uh, and mechanics, of terrestrial mechanics, uh, in the hands of great g- geniuses like Galileo and others. Um, that precisely because these sciences went further ahead than the others, you know, it wasn't until the end of the 18th century, really, that chemistry became a real science with the discovery of oxygen. It wasn't until the 19th century with Darwin in biology um, that therefore everything, it was, it was informed by the science of its time. The form that materialism took was very much informed by the, uh, the, the science of the time. Descartes, for example, um, even described the human body as effectively being like like a machine, basically, albeit one inhabited by a soul. And uh, Hobbes, who was a contemporary of Descartes. And uh, Hobbes lived at a time of incredible storm and stress. Um, he, he lived in the course of the, uh, the English Civil War. He lived through these great events. Ironically, although he is a, a, probably one of the best representatives of bourgeois materialism, he was a royalist, actually. He was a reactionary. And uh, he was therefore forced to flee to, uh, to, to France, um, where he wrote some of his great texts and he actually analyzed the state as a little bit like the mechanical clumping together of atoms forms us as human beings. The, the mechanical clumping together of, of men uh, basically uh, forms the, this great monster, the Leviathan, the state basically. Uh, it's the the, 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 necessary evil with the autocrat at its head, who is a necessarily sort of bringing order amidst the brutish and, and selfish competition of human beings that he very cynically imagined that, that, that we were of this sort of character. Uh, um, it was a very mechanical sort of interpretation, but you can see, actually, it's, it, 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 it came with certain personal dangers to advocate these views in France for uh, Hobbes, because, uh, of course, it also strips the state of its divine justification, and so he was forced in the 1650s to uh, appeal to Cromwell to return back to, uh, uh, to England, which he, he was able to do. Um, so, you can see there's a seed of a revolutionary idea there, but Hobbes was far from a revolutionary. He was a, he was a pragmatic uh, bourgeois materialist who could make peace with a, uh, you know, an absolute monarch or a lord protector at the same time. You know, he was a, a practical materialist of a bourgeois sort of outlook. Um, but ultimately, because actually of this empiricist uh, development of materialism, this very mechanical uh, development, the mat- in, um, empiricism itself... Uh, as developed by Hobbes and Locke, and particularly those that came after them, would actually find itself in a dead end philosophically. It would find itself ensnared when taken to its, lo- uh, its extreme and therefore absurd conclusion. It would find itself actually in the realm of subjective idealism. Now, for the, um, yeah, for the mechanical materialists like Hobbes and, and Locke, we interact with the world just as the world interacts with itself by, by very mechanical sort of uh, motions where our sense organs are basically like buttons being pressed externally by the, uh, the world around us. And that is how we receive knowledge. It's a very passive notion of knowledge, basically. And in fact, John Locke described the mind as effectively like a tabula rasa, a blank slate, which is empty until the senses are impacted by the, uh, the outside world. Um, you know, our, our senses basically write upon our minds. They fill our minds with content, which is empty until such thing, you know, as our senses fill it with uh, knowledge. Um, but immediately, actually, this, this very mechanical conception of things sets up an op- a, 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 a sort of duality. Um, with, uh, 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 effectively, which became a serious problem for empiricism. It, 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 it places an opposition between cause and effect, between the sense organ and that which impacts upon the sense organ, uh, between an outer objective world and a sort of uh, passive inner subjective world. Uh, in other words, it, it sets up an opposition between mind and matter, basically. Which is an inheritance from, uh, well, from the Middle Ages, really. Uh, it's, it, it, it falls into the same fundamental problem, and uh, in fact, uh, the, it raises a question: you know, if, if our um If all we have are our sense impressions, basically, they are the interface between that outer objective world and this inner subjective world, which are completely distinct from one another. Um, If all we have are our sense impressions, which tell us about that outer world, how can we know that they actually give um, any real impression of that outer world, basically? Uh, How do we know that the world is the way it is, uh, as our senses tell us it is? Um, How do we even know that there is anything beyond our sense impressions, actually? Um, That's the sort question that is raised by this sort of duality of, uh, of falsely stating the problem in this kind of uh, in this kind of way, and even even Locke who. Um Uh, He's largely regarded as a materialist, but even he um, basically raised a question mark over even the existence of a material world. He describes matter um, as merely the something we know not what, the supposed but unknown support of those qualities we find existing. So I mean, he's not exactly sure himself whether there is a material world. Now, the solution to this problem was actually um, provided or indicated really by one of the great rationalist philosophers, and that was by um, Baruch Spinoza, um, who who lived in the Netherlands, although he was of, um, uh, I think, uh, Jewish Sephardic um, ancestry. And uh, he, he explains that the solution to this problem, basically, which is that there is only one world. There is, there is no fundamental separation between the objective and the subjective. Uh, he regarded ex- extension, i.e., uh, you know, um, extension in geometrical space and the properties of mechanical motion, and thought and ex- experience and these sort of things as basically two qualities, two aspects of the same fundamental thing, uh, which he calls substance, effectively. And that is very much the case. You know, We're not simply passively receiving uh, sense impressions from the world outside of us. We're not separate and apart from that. We have a material brain, of course, inside our material body, which is as much part of the material world um, as, uh, as anything else. And uh, yeah, for, for, for Spinoza, everything was made of this one substance, i.e. he was a monist. He didn't set up this dualistic separation between mind and matter. But for, for Spinoza, of course, this, uh, as, as Alan explained last night, this substance was God, um, effectively, in a very, in a kind of pantheistic manner. Everything is God. I am God. You are God. The chairs and tables are God. Um, but of course, if everything is God, then nothing is God, basically. It kind of reduces the, uh, you know, the mystical element of, of, of God into entirely. Um, God is effectively a byword for matter in that kind of you know, idealism. So it's, it's a kind of I- idealism that is, for all intents and purposes, materialistic, basically. It comes very close to a materialist worldview. But um, yeah, once more returning to Locke. And the downfall, really, of English uh, materialism. Um, now, Locke, well, he lived at the end, really, of a revolutionary period in British history. Um, uh, the, the, the period of, this, of the, uh, the 17th century, the peri- in which you had the Great English Civil War, the Restoration, and then towards the end of the century, you had the Glorious Revolution, which was uh, very much the time uh, that Locke was, uh, was, 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 was writing. He had uh, gone into exile, I believe, to the Netherlands in the time of the Restoration. And returned from exile when a uh, a Dutch adventurer, William of Orange, was invited to take the throne of England from from James II. Um, And it was a time, basically, in which the the, the revolutionary potential of the British bourgeois was becoming exhausted. Now, Uh, they were actually they were they were basically compromising with the elements of the old order that were still existing. You know, with the uh, with with the uh, the church, the the the, the monarchy, who was in you know. You had this constitutional monarchy, the House of Lords, these remnants of feudalism. And they came to a compromise, basically, with the old uh, aristocracy, in which the bourgeois would effectively have power and be able to make money um, in in, in the means in which they... uh, um, which which was their fundamental priority, basically. And um, Locke's um, philosophy was fundamentally in keeping with the spirit of, of his time, basically. Um, his his philosophy was a practical but inconsistent philosophy. Um, It had materialist elements, but it doubted the existence of matter. You know, it left, just like uh, um, Newton, uh, it left room open for God, despite the fact that you had this mechanical universe which would continue on its motions for all eternity, it allowed room for a prime mover who would have the the great role of just setting the whole thing in motion. It was not exactly like the the God of uh, the Old Testament that could turn people to pillars of salt. It was... uh, rather less than that Um, so it was very much in in the spirit of uh, of the time of of compromising inconsistency basically of the British bourgeois Um, but as I say having arrived in power the British bourgeoisie were determined to put an end to this period of storm and stress they became became basically increasingly sceptical of anything that smacked of revolution or even of materialism and therefore a period of, of philosophical reaction effectively set in and in the eighteenth century, the immediate successors of locke in uh, in, uh, in england um Actually, I think Hume was, a Scot- was Scottish, was he not? And, uh, and actually Bishop Barclay was Irish. So <laughs> uh, but they still, they nonetheless form part of this tradition of, of sort of British empiricism. Um, they very much indeed did take empiricism to its logical and absurd conclusion. And Hume precisely denies the possibility of knowing whether there even is a material world out there, be, you know, beyond our senses. Um, and the, the logical conclusion of that is actually that all I can be sure of is that I exist. You know, solipsism, the, the idea that I exist, but I'm not sure any of you exist, or the material world around me exists—that's the, the 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 logical and uh, you know completely sterile conclusion, basically, of this uh, of this empiricism. And and Berkeley he went further. He he denied that there was a material world at all. All we have are our sense impressions. There's no evidence for a material world. Um, in fact, it's a leap of faith what we actually believe gives order to these sense impressions, and therefore he believed it was God simply implanting these ideas in our heads, basically. So you see how this one-sided materialism sort of ran into a dead end and was taken to um, the, the extreme of subjective idealism by people like Hume and Bishop Berkeley, And it reflected the reaction of the British bourgeoisie um, in, in that period of time. But if, um, if materialism died a death in England in the 18th century, it had a brilliant revolutionary rebirth in, uh, in France in the same period. Now, by the 18th century, um, French conditions were increasingly coming into uh, 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 conflict with the existing, um, uh, the existing state of affairs, basically, it was coming into conflict with the state, the old ruling class, the old ancien regime was in conflict with the progress of society, basically. Uh, the whole thing was teetering on the edge of collapse. Um, you had uh, a series of wars. Uh, with England and and with uh, European powers, in which the the French were dealt heavy blows, um, and, and of course the, the national debt was increasing. And who was per- who was forced to pay that uh, debt? It was the Third Estate, basically, i.e. not the first two estates of the clergy and the noblemen. They were uh, they they didn't have to uh, they had a say in everything, but they didn't have to pay any taxes. It was the it was the Third Estate, i.e. the increasingly wealthy bourgeoisie, uh, who were, represented the majority of the wealth of the nation, who had to. Who had to pay for these uh, what they regarded as senseless wars. Um, in other words, the French bourgeois were coming into an acute conflict with the whole of the existing order, with the clergy, with the aristocracy, with the monarchy. And uh, a revolution was brewing, Um, a revolution that would eventually end, of course, yes, precisely as we say, with the with the fall of the Bastille, with the fall of the uh, the monarchy, and with the beheading of a monarch, um, and uh, and the the beheading of much of the uh, the old aristocracy, basically. But in order to prepare uh, the, the ground for what would be an extremely thoroughgoing revolution in France, it was necessary to prepare the minds of men and women for this tremendous overthrow of the old order. In other words, society was crying out, basically, for a philosophy, for an outlook, um, an outlook of this revolutionary class in the ascent, of the revolutionary element within the French bourgeois. And it was in these conditions that actually it was, ironically, the quite conservative, compromising gentleman that was John Locke. His ideas were were brought to France by a guy called Condillac. And... um, given a completely new content, basically. This this English materialism, when it was imported into France, um, in the hands of a a, a series of brilliant thinkers, including Holbach, Helvetius, and Diderot, um, who are in turn closely aligned with the the, the great social theorists, although not really philosophers, um, Rousseau and Voltaire, whose names are synonymous with the the great revolutions of the 18th century. And um, and that they 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 took this materialism, this English materialism, and they filled it with a new revolutionary content, basically. Um and uh, it reflected the fact that the French Revolution was basically being fought on a higher level uh, than the, the English Revolution. Which w- the English Revolution was fought on the basis of a purified religion, of a puritanical sort of religious war against the old regime. The French Revolution was fought on, under the banner of, of reason and of creating a rational society of, of, of liberty, equality, and justice, basically. Um, and in the same way that the, uh, that the, the French Revolution itself was fought... To, uh, to its logical conclusion, um, the, uh, the, the French materialism was also taken to its logical c- conclusion. The, uh, the great French materialists—they didn't shirk the, uh, the logical conclusion of materialism. It's, it's anti-clerical, it's anti-religious, it's atheistic side, its revolutionary edge, which people like, you know, Hobbes and, uh, and Locke were very much not of that character. You know, these, these people—they um, they, they intended to turn. Uh, materialism into a weapon against the, the gods and the church and the monarchy, and the whole of the existing order uh, the existing order, which was deemed irrational by these thinkers, um, they denied the divinity of uh, of, of monarchs. And they declared that the highest good was that which led to the the, the greatest happiness of, of human beings, basically. Um, which w- and, and and as I say, it was it was very far from the, the the cynical, self-serving materialism of someone like Hobbes, who believed that you know we as human beings are naturally brutish and uh, and, and selfish, and therefore we need uh, an, uh, some sort of authoritarian, uh, strong hands that's going to sort of bring law and order. No, these these materialists were um, they believed that. Uh, if you elevated human conditions You could also elevate human beings Basically We needed to liberate Men and women From the awful conditions These barbaric conditions Which create a barbaric Culture and society Um and uh, therefore, they believed it was possible to reorganize society on the basis of human reason rather than on the basis of superstition. And unlike those uh, you know, superstitious thinkers who thought that, um, uh, who preached a, a better life after death, they said, well, no, on the contrary, suffering is not something that was created by original sin. It doesn't go back to Adam and Eve and all of these sort of things. Um, suffering is an ill produced by society, and we can get rid of it basically by uh, revolutionizing society. Um you know, we can have heaven here on earth, basically, or not at all, was the philosophy of the French materialists. In other words, you can see already the direction is being pointed forward towards how materialism connects to communism. You can see that in French materialism. It's already pointing in that direction. Um, You know, to change men, you have to change their material conditions and make them more humane, fundamentally. Marxism owes a direct debt of gratitude, really, to the French materialists, who, uh, in turn... You know these uh, um, these these brilliant writers, and and really they, they, they were. I mean, Marx, I think, regarded Diderot as his favourite essayist. They were, their works were pulsating with life. You know, they were really vivacious, um, uh, bold thinkers who who also you know, they harnessed all of the latest developments in science. They were really keenly interested in science. In fact, Diderot himself um, led the the editorial, basically, of of an encyclopedia, which aims to bring together all of human knowledge of the time in science, in philosophy, in social theory, all of these ideas into a great encyclopedia, for which he wrote about 7,000 articles himself. He was a very prolific man. Um, And... um, yeah, he, he, he thought that basically science was the way to liberate humanity, it was through reason, getting rid of the fog of superstition. Um, and, and he came under... Uh, th- this encyclopedia was basically uh, banned by the church and by the French state at the time. Uh, he, you know, the, the, these people were prepared to face um, serious personal persecution. These were self-sacrificing individuals who believed that they were doing what they were doing for the good of humanity. Um, and they, uh, yeah, their, 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 their ideas are full of, um, of, of, this, of this really genuinely bold and revolutionary spirit. And uh, in, in fact, these uh, the, the, the direct um, there is a direct link really between French materialism and Marxism. Precisely, actually, through the utopian socialist Fourier himself was directly inspired by French materialism. Robert Owen uh, was more indirectly inspired by the ideas of Helvetius, um, and. Um, you know, Robert Owen precisely wanted to to elevate uh, men and women by creating decent conditions for them in the factories. He was very much an, a materialist himself, uh, basically. Um and even Lenin, in the, uh, in the 20th century, in, uh, after the Bolsheviks had come to power, in a, in a short article he wrote, he, he showed there is still life and, and a sharp edge, effectively, to these great French materialist writers. He, uh, he wrote a little article on the significance of uh, militant materialism. And in the war against uh, the, the, the influence of the church and of mysticism in the countryside in Russia to awaken the intellectual life of the Russian peasantry, he actually advised Russian communists to translate the, the writings of the great French materialists precisely to awaken that, that, that mood of critical thinking and of rationalism amongst the peasants um, and precisely because it, 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 it contrasted uh, it had so much colour in contrast with some of what he, he described as the sort of uh, um, like the, the grey copied texts of the Mar- you know, so-called Marxist literature which he, was, he, he thought was of a deplorably low quality um, at that time Um, so we I think uh, um, can we owe obviously a great deal I think there is a direct uh, heritage really that that Marxism owes to this brilliant school of French materialism Um, but nonetheless uh, it is worth pointing out of course that the French materialists suffered from all of the defects of of English materialism basically it was uh, very much an an undialectical materialism uh, and it was very much uh, in that sort of vein of a a mechanical, um, mechanical outlook but just just as with the English materialists, or even to a greater degree, considering the, the, uh, the emphasis upon scientific investigation that these great materialists placed, um, you can't really blame it upon the French materialists themselves. I mean, the, the, the level of science was such that uh, um, the whole world outlook was effective, you know, the whole out- outlook of science was effectively undialectical. Species were regarded as completely static in the same form that they had been given to us since the, uh, the, the origins of the uh, of the Earth. Um, it, was, it was regarded that the, basically the Earth goes around the Sun as, as do the, all the other planets and have done for all eternity in exactly the same sort of rotations. Um, it, it, it was only uh, Kant who really came up with the idea of the nebular hypothesis of the origins of the solar system a brilliant idealist philosopher actually, Uh, but his ideas were not widely accepted actually until the start of the 20th century, that the the, the acceptance of the nebular hypothesis of the origin of the solar system became widespread, and then of course, uh, you know, geology didn't even exist as a science really, Uh, that either we had had these geological features that we see around us for all eternity, um, or they had been created by great biblical uh, catastrophes. Um, this was kind of like the, uh, the the fundamental uh, outlook of the time, and these were the this was the level of science basically, and, and it's no wonder, of course, that the French materialists reflected that level of uh, science. Uh, although it should be said, um, they, there are brilliant uh, dialectical insights in the great writings of the French materialists. So, for example, I recommend reading D'Alembert's uh, conversations with Diderot, or Diderot's conversations with D'Alembert, um, where uh, Diderot actually. Um, hypothesizes that species have evolved. They've evolved from other species. It's quite remarkable, really. It's far ahead of his time, considering he's writing in the middle of the 18th century, about uh, you know, a bit less than a century uh, before uh, the origins of the species came out. Um, so, of course, it's, it's, no, it's no wonder that they uh, suffered from these limitations. And, of course, the, the overriding limitation of, of French materialism was precisely the fact that they were the ideological trailblazers of the great... French Revolution of a bourgeois revolution, in other words, um, and uh, uh, you know they they were in order to to raise the nation, basically to raise the population. Uh, for a struggle against the Ancien Regime It was necessary to, to raise the, the, the possibility of Fighting for the liberation of humanity Not the liberation of a particular class These great thinkers were of course Fighting for the liberation of humanity as a whole That was, the, that was precisely what inspired them But of course it wasn't that The French Revolution would not end with the liberation of humanity uh, it, would, it would Achieve the liberation, at least not in the immediate term It achieved the, the liberation Of the bourgeois class And itself was shown to be You know, given enough time, it it too was shown to be irrational. It had its irrational elements also. Um, You know, the kingdom of reason became basically the bourgeois republic. Uh, The um, uh, the rights of man were really the rights of bourgeois man, the rights to enjoy private property. Um, And the the utopian socialists used the same method as the French materialists and and the rationalists of the Enlightenment to basically uh, um, argue precisely that capitalism is just as irrational. as, uh, as, as, uh, yeah is just as irrational as the Ancien Regime, as the feudal regime which fundamentally came before it. These, these ideas were, in a, in a manner of speaking, only semi-materialist um, and precisely for this reason, because they were the ideas of the, the bourgeois revolution, because they sought to liberate humanity in the abstract. They talked about the rights of man in the abstract. Reason and rationality were abstract ideas that were basically, you know, reason could, could, could uh, we could draw out reasonable conclusions at any period in time. It was only because... These thinkers happened to be born in the 18th century that the ideas of the rights of man, the social contract and all of these sort of things of a harmonious social order were really discovered in the 18th century rather than, say, the 15th century or something like this. And the utopian socialist fundamentally applies the same method. You know, they, they looked around at capitalism and they decided it was equally irrational. Uh, you know, the, the great satanic mills, the poverty, the, the slums, all of these things. And they were right, of course. Capitalism did have the, that element of, of irrationality in it. It had a class contradiction within it. But of course, in the period of the 18th century and the, ni- and the early 19th century, um, there was a great deal of truth to what the, the French materialists were saying, because of course, the, the, uh, uh, to, 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 to quote Hegel, all that is rational is real. And all that therefore, the, 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 conclu- the, the obverse of that is that all that is irrational is unreal. The, uh, it was precisely because the the old feudal system and the trappings of the old feudal system were coming into conflict with the needs of society that it was irrational, it needed to be overthrown, and they were correct, of course, in that analysis, but that was not a timeless statement about. Feudalism and, and capitalism um, as, as social orders. This was a historical truth, of course, uh, and it had its historical, libera- its historical uh, limitations. And uh, the point is that today, um, of course, it is capitalism which has uh, become irrational, which is in conflict, basically, with the interests of society as a whole. And it is the proletariat, it is the working class, which, is, which, which carries on its shoulders, basically, the destiny of humanity, which is the ascending uh, uh, revolutionary class, and which has nothing to be afraid of from the truth, from rational insight, and from reason, basically. But these are not, of course, now understood as uh, ahistoric, uh, timeless truths basically but historical truths about the, uh, where class society has come to in its culmination in capitalism basically and uh, it's precisely as Lenin said you know that the reason that Marxism appears all powerful is precisely because it is true and the capitalist class today they don't the truth is not on their side the truth actually speaks against them which is why you know in, in academia in uh, you know, the Frankfurt School, the postmodernists, they all turn their back on the enlightenment because these these, these men and women they fought for truth. They tr- fought for rationality. They fought for an insight into the workings of the world. And the, ins- the insight that uh, genuine science gives us into the working of society is that capitalism is a doomed system that must be overthrown. And therefore, they turn their back upon rationality. They turn their back upon ins- on, on reason and these sort of things. But I, I think um, we should... Yeah, we, we should gladly allow them to, to, to turn back, turn their backs on that tradition of the enlightenment because these men and women, these were giants who I think we can claim as part of our tradition they fought in their own manner in, uh, they fought honestly for the liberation of humanity, not just materially but spiritually intellectually as we are fighting for the liberation of humanity spiritually and intellectually ourselves and, and some of them paid terrible, a terrible price for it the ultimate price for it, you know, people like Galileo uh, and people like Giordano Bruno uh, um, uh, um, you know, uh, like Spinoza and others. Um, they were great revolutionaries within the limitations that they had, of course, which were the limitations of their time. And we, you know, if the, if the bourgeois want to cast them aside and say that they don't want them as part of their tradition, well, we will say that, you know, Marxism stands on the shoulders of these great giants as well. Not just Marx, Engels, Lenin and Trotsky, but yeah, also Giordano Bruno. Yes, also Galileo. Uh, and and, and if, you, if you want, you know, uh, Bacon and Descartes and all of these great things. of course also form part of our revolutionary tradition from which you know marxism is the distilled essence of all of these you know fantastic ideas that uh, uh, also preceded it so on that i think i'll finish
0: that's it for this week's episode hope you enjoyed the talk before you go if you'd like to brush up on your marxist philosophy then we would highly recommend checking out our education hub over at socialist.net forward slash education there you can find an entire page dedicated to the question of marxist philosophy including articles book recommendations reading guides as well as talks just like this one and if you'd like to delve deeper into the history of philosophy then I would highly recommend checking out Alan Woods' latest book, History of Philosophy A Marxist Perspective, which is available from well-read books. Furthermore, if you want to learn more about the Enlightenment in particular, then there will be another talk just like this one at this year's International Marxist University, which will look at how today's bourgeois have turned their backs on materialism and turned towards mysticism and idealism, and how it is the duty of Marxists today to rescue the rational kernel from the thinkers of the Enlightenment period. So if you'd like to hear that talk, as well as many other talks that will be available at this year's International Marxist University, you can find out more using the links in the show notes of this podcast, where you can also find the links to all the things that I've mentioned previously. So we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for tuning in and make sure you tune in next week for an episode on how we can fight for a free Palestine. And after that, we'll be bringing out an exciting new four-part series looking at the ideas of Vladimir Lenin. And thanks once again for listening to Marxist Voice, the podcast of socialist appeal.